Coming up next, we'll be discussing what book, Jake? Homer's Odyssey. Welcome to the Bookings. This is Nathan Opperson, your humble and obedient host, relying on all my stock phrases. Let me see if I can do this whole thing in just my stock phrases. Here I go. Hey, everybody, this is Nathan Opperson, your humble and obedient host, agent provocateur. That's the thing I'm saying now and pointing out that I say. And there's Brandon Chastine. He's a scholar who's a baller of reading. How you doing, Brandon? I'm fine, Nathan. And over there, we've got the pastor who's a master of reading. It's Jake Menzel. What's up? How you doing, Jake? Good, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, sir. Glad you asked. Jake's wearing the shoes. He's wearing the cheek. He's wearing the blah, blah, blah. I don't want to do my stock phrases. I want to do something don't. else. I want to be different. Yeah. Do uh, heroic similes for us. Heroic similes. similes. An epic simile? Yeah. There's Brandon. His hair is like a herd of sheep which run down the mountain, and oh. most <laughs> of them are black, but there's some gray sheep in them, and there's a thick bunch of sheep together, <laughs> just like Brandon's hair. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's like a Brandon metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> And there's Jake. His beard is like a palm tree. Yeah. Yes, that's what I think. No, your beard's not like a palm tree. That wasn't any good at all. Uh, There's Jake. He's got arms. They're like trees, like the great cedars of a cedar forest where the trees have muscles, just like Jake's (laughs) muscles. He's as tall as a, how tall are you? Uh, six three six four. He's as tall as a six three six four tree. That's right. He's like a two eyed <laughs> cyclops right there. A duclops, in fact. Turns out we're both like two eyed cyclops. We're all like two eyed cyclops. Yeah, we are two eyed cyclops. Yeah, but you're like we're this. biclops. We're biclops. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Christian podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Transclops. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody excited to talk about some more about the Odyssey? Oh yeah, let's do <laughs> let's this. Go. All right, Brandon, I'm going to let you call. The bookening donor shoutouts. How to do donor shoutouts? If you'll remember last Ugh. time, Jake made a absolute travesty of the whole donor shoutout system. I think I actually really did deeply offend Nathan. Well, he mm-hmm. trolled me because I still don't know whether he's like Odysseus. I looked into his eyes. I couldn't crafty. tell whether he was deceiving me because it sounded like he was just doing normal <laughs> donor shoutouts. By this point, people have told us whether or not they got it. Whether or not they got the subtle. Thing. But if they're clever, they just told you they got it, but didn't tell you what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm Boatswain number two that's going to be, you know, eaten by some sirens or something. I'm just like, I don't get it, Odysseus. And he's like, stuff some wax in your ears and row. <laughs> I wasn't offended by that. Um, Brandon, call it. Oh, man, I don't want to call it. Um, you don't want me to call it, do you? I don't know. It seems like a threat. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of was. <laughs> what are you going to make us do? I don't know. I always make us do it like opera or something silly. And Yeah, let's not do know. opera. What do we yeah. want to do? Oh, man. Let's uh, let's say it normal. <laughs> That's not a possibility. That's not an option. <laughs> it's not an option. Oh, man. Let's put the word like in front of it and pretend like it's an epic simile. Okay, fine. <laughs> That's what we'll do. We'll put the word like in front of it and pretend like it's an epic simile. <laughs> Everyone put on your imagination caps. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is the last time Nathan ever asks us to do. <laughs> I give you guys the privilege of calling 
the style of donor shout outs and you make a mockery of it the both of you it's like hey guys you want to help me paint the mona lisa yeah let me just splash some yellow paint on there that's not how it works it's the mona lisa you guys are both the worst all right brandon all right lily of the valley like lily of the valley what a great metaphor all right jake andrew and esther the lovebirds <laughs> Andrew and Esther like lovebirds. There we go. <laughs> Andrew and Esther like lovebirds. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The Jenny Z like inscrutable. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, a ninja turtle? Kawabunga. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny Z <laughs> like. Uh, like Robert and Rhonda the lovebirds, Jake. Like Robert and Rhonda the lovebirds. We could also do Robert likes Rhonda the lovebirds. Got some John and Jill and little baby Max. Like John and Jill and little baby Max. Ooh, what a metaphor. What a metaphor. That's great. David's mighty men transport, Jake. David's mighty like men transport. Cowabunga man. <laughs> my beloved mother, Beth, Brandon. Uh, my beloved mother, Brett. Oh, yeah. Like Nathan's m- beloved mother, Beth. <laughs> uh, Maya. <laughs> Like Maya. I like Maya. Everybody likes Maya, yeah. right? Who doesn't like Maya? Uh, Jay and Katie the Lovebirds. Jay and Katie the Lovebirds, who are cold and like cheese. <laughs> <laughs> we're just inserting the word like. That's all devolved into. Benjamin and Danny Tiberius. Benjamin and Danny like Tiberius. <laughs> Like a man and likey, like period, like uh, Nathan, not me. Nathan, like not Nathan. It's like a Tarzan. Nathan, like not Nathan. Nathan, not like Nathan. <laughs> Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds, and little future indetermined, indetermined sex baby. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds, and little undetermined like baby. There we go. Professor X and Mrs. X, the lovebirds. Huh. <laughs> Why is this one so hard? <laughs> this is a puzzler. <laughs> <laughs> Professor X and Mrs. X? Is that what we said? Yeah. Professor X and like Mrs. X. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was, uh. You're welcome, Nathan. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the kind of thing I have to put up with, folks. I try and bring you a quality show. And what do these two do? We're here to sabotage it all. Yep. They just want things to devolve into silliness. I'm always trying to keep us on track, always trying to avoid any kind of discretions, always trying to make sure that we only discuss literature and nothing else. And Nathan hates those discretions. (laughs) Discretions. Discretions. (laughs) Is that what I said? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brother. All right, guys. This is what we wanted to talk about about the odyssey we wanted to talk about the morality of the odyssey mm-hmm. actually first of all i'd like to say two things that i didn't say last episode that i thought of number one i really like stories where there's i think i've said this before on the booking probably somewhere i really like fantasy stories and stories like this uh, in a world that's semi invent i know this world's kind of based on the real world maybe has some f- but whatever it's a fantasy story for my purposes um i really like stories that have a history. I really like like the Star Wars movies that like the originals like you know that there were these Jedi and the Sith and everything and it all happened before the movies that we got to. My favorite part of the Lord of the Rings movies is when they walk 
past those desiccated statues that are just just this there's a number of random shots where they're just walking past old decayed landmarks and that attention to detail in those movies whatever other flaws they may have it's just really cool to think that there's a whole middle earth that happened before we ever got to this movie yeah so i've always enjoyed that and so i really like that again in the odyssey that you've got this whole history of troy of the gods of all these different things and it all feels important and old and cool and it's world building it's it yeah. feels like this place that has actually existed and that is lived in well, it, there's something more than that though for me it evokes feeling of it's the same feeling i get reading a good supernatural story where it kind of evokes that fear slash wonder slash mystical appreciation well, of the unknown yeah it's mm-hmm. because it's this it's this world that's bigger than what you see it's yeah like, so the spotlight's on this one part of it but you realize that it's much bigger than that and yeah. you only get to see the small portion of it yeah but there's it's, this history that extends yeah. into the bygone eras that i'll never know about but there's obviously these stories of gods and monsters and everything else yeah that... there's a whole creation story and origin story of greece and the world as we know it that's bound up with these gods and their characters and homer and everybody listening to it would know it would know the those stories but the fact that they inform every aspect of this story come of this particular book comes through and makes it feel that much more cool something that's nicely done about the books or book we're going to read for our hundredth episode i would say is just you get the sense of a lot of very important things happened that like, I always like it when I feel like, oh, man, I wish they would have written the book or made the movie about that thing. Yeah. Like, it should always That's sound really like cool the, the coolest thing hundreds of years ago. Yeah. People hardly remember it. I uh, agree with you there. That's one of the strengths of what we're about to read yeah. is this whole world building. I would say it's like Star Wars in that sense mm-hmm. and what ended up what ended up making me forgive Star Wars. Yeah. And what I actually suspect will end up making me forgive and be okay with what we're going to read for the hundredth mm-hmm. is us along the same lines. Yeah. Because this person does a good job with the world that they've created. They do. They do. That person's pretty smart about that. That person's yeah. fantastically smart about it. It's yeah. what, what's, what gives them their, their potency, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So yeah, so I don't think we mentioned Hesiod. This would have all been in the background of the readers too, because or his audience, because Hesiod at the time was big with his Theogony, which was the story of the gods. And it was the other big rival book to the Iliad and the Odyssey as far as popularity goes. And so these stories would have been a part of the context that they were in. And so, yeah, there's a whole history mm-hmm. that they would have been aware of and that we aren't necessarily aware of, but gives it that ancient feel. Yeah. Like you're walking through some, well, the scene that pops into my mind is when they go into the caverns of Moria mm-hmm. and he shines the light and you see the big... There was a whole civilization here and I never yeah. got to see it and it's and just... it's ruined it's... and it's gone and all I see are the echoes of it. Yeah. There's a, there's a mystery and wonder and feeling of how small you are, how big time is and history is. And it's great when a book can properly evoke that. Yeah. And I think an epic is the perfect place for that and it should be there. Right. So you feel like you're kind of touching, touching the, the numinous or something like that. I don't know. Which is why technically what we're about to read is a fantasy epic mm-hmm. for the hundredth episode. Yeah. So that's why we're doing it. Yeah. Um, so that was thing number one. I have no idea what thing number two was. I don't remember. It's lost to the sands of time. It's You can reach out and touch it in the numinous fashion of something that's been forgotten because I have no idea what the second thing was. I knew what it was maybe when we began this episode, but I don't remember it anymore. 
more, Brandon? So in doing my research for this these podcasts, I discovered that the Roman world was not a huge fan of the Odyssey. By the time we get to the end of what we think of as classical ancient Greece, uh, the story is accepted by people as holy writ among the Greek city-states uh, during the Persian invasion and all of that. But then the Romans portray Odysseus in a lot of their writings as un- unsympathetic, as a con man, as just not a great guy. I believe it's in the Aeneid where they really play on the fact, I could be getting this wrong, I don't remember, it's either Aeneid, Aeneid or, or Ovid, Ovid, however you say that guy's name. They play on the fact that Odysseus just gets his men killed because he wants to sail close to those sirens and see what's up, and he's kind of a jerk. So I guess my question is, is Odysseus a good guy, and why or why not? <laughs> Well, there, I guess there are two ways to answer that question. One is he a good gay guy in the, by the standards of what the Greeks thought of being a good guy was, or is he a, a good guy by the way that we have a standard of what a good guy is? Which one do you want to answer? Uh, how about both? Okay. Well, he was a good guy by the standards of what the Greeks thought a good guy was. And you have to understand that that was like what we've been said last episode and the episode before, that that's a man who has power and has the favor of the gods to seek his own fame and glory and does it with confidence and assuredness and great cunning and yeah great cunning yeah Mm -hmm. and he has all those things he has the morality of the greeks and he's also generous and yeah he's he's generous to those who deserve him his generosity and Mm -hmm. he's brings vengeance on those who deserve his vengeance without a lot of mercy or in between so does that make him a good guy by our standards no (laughs) by god's standards no yeah dude spends 20 years out seeking fame and fortune instead of being at home with his wife and kids he goes off from the war to seek fame and fortune and adventure and make a name for himself when he had a wife and a young son that needed a dad at home. Instead of taking responsibility for his men, he sees them as pawns to be used by him. Um, They're there to serve him in his um, pursuit of fame and fortune and so they're disposable and he treats them as disposable. He still mourns over them when they die, but it's not going to stop him from from seeing the bigger picture, which is his own his own glory instead of the glory of God. He's a liar. Mm-hmm. He's a manipulator. Adulterer. He's an adulterer. Serial adulterer. He's basically James Bond. He has no, when it comes to those things, he has absolutely no compunction of conscience whatsoever. Well, that seems like the answer is pretty clear then. I guess what I'm dancing around is that certain people in the Christian world hold this book up as some kind of a moral standard. And I'm wondering what why we make you it. Would, th- why you would listen to the pagan, ancient pagan Greeks instead right. of... I want to yeah. say... Oh, sorry, oh. I'm over here refreshing my memory on. So what I'm thinking, and it kind of is going to get at this question too, mm-hmm. is it, it, you, you made me interested in the fact that... So we talked about Homer mm-hmm. has all these various ways that people think about him throughout mm-hmm. history. Ulysses is pretty much... Or Odysseus, also called Ulysses, is pretty much the same way. Mm-hmm. And you're right, with both Virgil and Ovid, he's seen as a deceitful, cunning liar right. in opposition to Aeneas because Aeneas needed to be the hero. Right. He's the founder and of so, Rome. He's this and then, stately um, dude. I knew that the other famous instance of Ulysses, do you remember where it is? Oh, in um, the poem. Uh, yeah, the Inferno. The, yeah, yeah. He's in one of the lowest circles of hell wrapped in flame, uh, like flaming tongues for punishment for his deceit. Although yeah. Homer in a very nice level of hell, isn't he like in near the top? Yeah, he's up in limbo. Yeah. 
with all the other guys. Did he make it all the way to Limbo? I forgot about that. I think he's in Limbo, yeah. He's in Limbo along with Socrates and Plato and those Mm -hmm. guys. The the noble pagans. Right. But yeah, Ulysses is not. He's down being punished for his lying, for his lying tongue. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting. So the Greeks saw him as this hero, this figure that we're supposed to emulate. Mm -hmm. And Homer, so here's, so then to get to your question, because what you're asking is, why do people hold this up as a great standard? Right. And without really questioning any, it, if Homer himself distanced himself from Ulysses or Odysseus and made it like, so this is just a guy who was doing these things, sort of like Livy does with his Roman histories with the emperors. If he did something like that, then it would be one thing. Mm-hmm. But we're dealing with a story that, for all I can tell, is praising Odysseus and his actions. Right. We're not supposed to feel like Odysseus is a bad guy. No, he's, right? what does Homer call him? He's always called him things like shrewd Odysseus or clever, clever Odysseus, little tags yeah. that or Homer's just like, yeah, Odysseus is cool. And that's because I think C.S. Lewis is right in the par- uh, preface to Paradise Lost that this is before uh, Plato and Aristotle. This is before philosoph- the philosophers began to think about the good and the beautiful and all that. I don't think they had a concept of the injustice of what Odysseus was doing to those who were under him. No, the closest we get to any pondering on that is when we visit the afterlife. And there we see that everybody's there and they still feel all the same grudges and there's still the same disputes and there's still life. God, oh, man, I can't believe this guy killed me. And give the impression the suitors are just going to hang out in the afterlife mad at Odysseus. And we're all just kind of in this existential sort of, I know we overuse that word on this podcast, but it just fits so many things. A dilemma where, you know, we're just kind of all making our own meeting and we bounce off of each other and fate might favor this person or that person at any time. And it happened to really like Odysseus quite a bit, but mm-hmm. what does any of it all mean or matter? Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is then when you assume that just because it's old, therefore it has some sort of morality mm-hmm. that you can aspire to, or it has some like position that's untouchable. The Odyssey is a great work of art, but does that mean it's some high moral standard that you should aspire to, or that you need to, because it's an ancient work of art, therefore assume that Homer was some great moral teacher who had ulterior motives and the stuff that you're supposed to like gnostically approach this thing to try and figure out mm-hmm. like and touch it with what's it velvet gloves mm-hmm. being very careful and delicate with it like it's going to break what I, I so I read this one essay and I guess I won't call the guy's name out but he said Homer was this master teacher and his whole point is trying to convince you that Homer intended for the rhetoric and for the morality of the Iliad and the Odyssey to teach you a moral code and mm-hmm. ethics and that you can't get a better teacher than Homer. He's like this great teacher who's just, all his desire is, is to teach you these things. And I think what this guy's doing is he's reading his own fantasies about what his ideal person is like. This gentleman a Christian? Claims to be. Yes, I guess I should say yes. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, so he has this fantasy about what the great artist must look like. Mm-hmm. It's like what Wendell Berry must think about himself, right? And so then all these people look to Wendell Berry as being this great person that they're all, like he's a Gandalf figure. Right. And so therefore he must be the great poet because he has positioned himself to look like this. And so they then want to take that sort of figure, this sort of agrarian poet farmer, and they want to read him into Homer. So Homer must have been like this, right? And so because we like the Iliad and the Odyssey, therefore it must be written by someone that's like this guy. So they look at it with, uh, they touch it with velvet gloves. They look at it with rose-colored glasses. Mm -hmm. Is that the expression? rose-colored gloves. They have these fantasies that they have about the past. And so therefore they reread the past, they remake it according to their own image, to this thing that they've built. And what do they want it to be? They want it to be this 
Atlantis sort of place where Homer was just this great teacher and was everybody was just gathering around him and he was teaching everybody rhetoric. He was teaching them all philosophy and he was just this great guy that was really subtle. But if you really read deeply into it, you can get all the morality you'll ever want out of life Mm -hmm. from Homer and from the Odyssey. And when I read this essay, I was like, did we just read the same thing? Like, I don't think that this is what I, from what I can tell, you're just, it's like, I assume I'm doing with Walter Benjamin. I'm kind of reading into Walter Benjamin what I want. Walter Benjamin to have said. And so what ends up happening is these people make the past into an idol. They make anything that's ancient into an idol. And then they also lose any sense of discernment. I remember when I was being homeschooled, we would see a lot of paintings from the Renaissance that seemed to me to be very erotically charged. But I just knew somehow I got the idea they couldn't be because it's old. It's a master. It's a whoever. And so I just assumed like this isn't bad. This is this is this isn't erotic. Even though for all intents and purposes, it really seems a lot like it's erotic from everything I can just uh, what do they call it? Cognitive disconnect because I 100% believed that this was old, virtuous and couldn't be doing something bad. And then, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, I was like, hey, this is not working. Yeah. The Venus by, is it by Botticelli where she's coming out of the seashell? Yeah. Yeah. You're not supposed to imagine that there's something sexually charged about that photo. Right. Like it's just the beauty of the form. Mm-hmm. That's all. <laughs> just you know, don't if you're if you're thinking bad thoughts, it's because you're a pervert. Yeah. We want to bleach the past. Mm-hmm. We want to think that the past had no sense of Well, we just don't want to be discerning yeah. in any way, shape, or form. We don't want to actually engage with anything by faith. And so we're always looking, always looking for something that we can... Someplace uh, we can draw the line. Yeah, we want clear, clean lines where we have exercised our discernment once and our discernment says old things are good. Therefore, I can undiscerningly give myself to all things antiquated or old or or classic, Mm -hmm. anything that's a part of the canon, and give those things to my kids because I've exercised my discernment this one time and and have determined to trust the canon, whatever that is that means yeah and so whether it's homer or renaissance art or whatever everything on this side of the line is good everything on this side of the line is bad it can be a chronological line it can be a genre line it can be you can draw the line anywhere really it seems to me to be pretty arbitrary where it becomes the line yeah it becomes foolish as though artists didn't deal with the same struggles and sins back then as we do today the painting you mentioned is a naked lady coming out of a seashell yeah holding her long hair right (laughs) Right, while men gaze at her. I'm not going to explain the all the implications of that, but it seems to be pretty erotic. It's pretty erotic, yeah. 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 And so, but you're not supposed to think of it that way and you're seeing, like, if you're if that's the way you look at it, it's because you're a corrupted modern. Right. That's not the way they thought of it back then. And then you have a teacher who is going to have everybody read, um, yeah, this actually happened. I had a teacher who had these sort of presumptions, like the Veritas Press sort of presumptions about the past, where everything's kind of pure and clean until you get probably to about the 1920s. And then that's where we can start being realistic about things, you know? And so I saw somebody recently on Facebook say something about anything after 1960 is just trash and garbage. Nothing Mm -hmm. good has been written past that date. And you're just like, well, it's largely because it's just really hard to wade through all the stuff yet. We haven't seen what's going to survive and be the classic. But anyways, back to this teacher. It's still funny to this day. She had us read Chaucer and she had us read the one, is it the Miller's Tale? Yeah. Where some really body stuff happens, like some horrifying stuff. And you're just like, wow. And this is this is classic, but uh, also some Shakespeare, some really body jokes in Shakespeare mm-hmm. too. Yeah, they have no discernment, and they don't want to practice discernment about the past. We just want to assume that 
if it strikes us as sinful and immoral, then there must be something wrong with us. Right. And that Homer, you got to let yourself be taught by the great Homer. Yeah, as if the tw- people in the 21st century discovered corruption, as if, as if yeah. my generation and as if really, yeah. I guess what these people would think is that around 1969, the culture discovered yeah. sexual depravity. So it's you see it really rampant in the classical movement. I know I mentioned them a lot, but mm. what they'll do is they'll assume like Homer is great. And if you mm. don't get him, it's because something's wrong with you. I think Homer's great. He's a great storyteller. I think there are reasons that he's great. He's great, very similar to the reasons that Tolstoy's great. But there are serious problems too, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great storyteller and that's fantastic. But then they'll also then drag out Plato and Aristotle and they'll be like, look, these guys are great. It's like they had really amazing thoughts. You can learn a lot about logic and thinking and the history of ideas from these guys. But, you know, Plato was also a pedophile. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he was pretty okay with being a pedophile. And so, you know, Aristotle would just kind of whitewash over that sort of stuff too. So, but yeah, you just laugh. What, What do you do with that sort of thing? You either pretend it's not there or... You try to make an excuse for it. What what you're dealing with is people who are in motion. They're swinging on a pendulum. Yes. They're reacting against something. They're reacting against the conceit of moderns to throw away everything. That's right. That's old. And so they're just going to embrace uncritically everything that's old and uncritically reject everything that's modern. Yeah. And the problem with on both sides is you're being uncritical. You're not being discerning. You're refusing to be ac- actively engaged. It's just laziness. And it's really lazy. It's really lazy with all of the conceit, all of the pride of being clever and intelligent and hardworking, which makes it really stink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, because it's just the it's it, it's in many ways it's it's like casting out one devil sweeping up so seven new devils can come right yeah. and take over and it's pretentious it's nasty it makes me think of the passage i think in mere christianity where our favorite author mr clive staples lewis says there's nothing that the devil would like more than for certain people to repent of being a prostitute if he can only ensnare them with pride yeah yeah and that's really what it is people see this obvious wickedness around us they want to repent of that and then they're they swing hard the other direction. Well, I think that there's a reason that a lot of people that go this direction, they end up like where Lewis ends up with ritual and smells and bells. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of them end up converting to Catholicism. Pride and arrogance and just love of tradition in the past. I think the healthy response, even though he was a Catholic, is to just laugh like Chesterton does, Mm -hmm. especially at moderns and postmoderns and their foolishness. So I guess what we're tiptoeing around right now is that we're really talking about the classical education movement, right? Is that what we're talking about? Is that what we're criticizing here? In principle, I'm 100% on board with the idea of classical Christian education and, and bo- in both senses, both with the principles of classical education, the idea of a, of a liberal, well-rounded, training kids how to think, and also in an explicitly Christian education. And so the principle of classical Christian education, 100% on board with that. And if you have the ability to put your kid in a good classical Christian school, awesome, more power to you. It's 100% accurate to say some of our best friends, I'm in this room, some of our best friends are classically educating their, their yes. children. Classically, although maybe not classically Christian. They're, you know, they're sending their kids to a classical yeah, style which, school. Which, which teaches the trivia. Some of our that. best friends. Yes. That's yeah. true. Absolutely. Yeah. And we don't have any problem with that at all. No, no, not at all. The The problem isn't with the model itself or with the principles, but it is with what uh, certain people do with model and the principles, which is use them as an occasion to just be. They're just proud people. 
Yeah, I mean, there's certain people that, as there are in any form of education, but I, but I think perhaps uh, different movements, different ideas come with different sins, different temptations attached to them. And I would say it's true that I think we'd probably all agree we've observed the lack of discernment, the love of everything that's old and the hatred of everything new. Yeah, well, That's something well, that's going to be more of a temptation or that we've observed has been more of a temptation for the classical movement. It's not that you can't, your kids can't be classically educated. It's not that we think you're doing anything wrong if you have kids in a classical model school or whatever. Well, look, here's the thing that people don't realize, uh, and that's that the temptation to avoid discernment never, ever, ever leaves. And so what a lot of people in the classical Christian education movement have done is they've exercised all their discernment up front mm-hmm. by choosing what they think is the the right model of education so that they can shut down and turn off their discernment and then be very proud that they chose the right model of education. And use all of those good sound principles as an excuse to not do the very thing that they're purporting to do, which is engage with their kids, um, engage with their kids on the level of their heart, on the level of their character, cause them to grow into wise and discerning kids. Mm -hmm. And so they've chosen the right model, and they're very proud about having chosen the right model, and then everything that comes with it is just ipso facto good. And, and that's, that's wrongheaded. It doesn't matter what your principles are, whether you are classical Christian or, or something different. When you latch on to your principles and everything that seems or appears to conform with those principles, therefore, is good, and then you get really proud about that, that's a problem. And that's a problem that's going to trickle down and affect your kids. We've seen this happen so frequently, and we've seen not just parents, but whole families and kids ruined by this sort of mentality. And the whole point of a solid classical Christian movement is to not do the very thing that people use it to do, which is to shut down your brains, shut down your discernment, stop thinking about character, stop thinking about uh, wisdom and humility and actual discernment, but to just make clean divisions. It's old, therefore it's good. It's the right model, therefore everything associated with it is good. And my kids are going to be the best for it because Latin, because Mm -hmm. whatever. Because the trivium, Mm -hmm. because other Latin phrases that we throw out there. And that's not the way that education works. And that's not the way that you raise or shepherd your children. So when you hear us come hard at classical Christian education movement, don't hear us coming hard against the principles of classical education or Christian education or classical Christian education. And if that's what your kids are in, don't get the vapors. That's not, we're not attacking you. And don't take them out of it by all means. Yeah, yeah, no. Keep them in. It's a good thing that you're doing, so long as you're doing it with humility and with real discernment. Actual discernment. And and that's that's those are the kinds of so if here's a warning, a, a thing that I would say if you are if you have your kids in the classical Christian movement, you're part of that movement, and you cannot hear our warnings about it with equanimity and grace and say, yeah, I see that, then you've got a problem because you're not being discerning and you're not willing to engage with the realities of the sinfulness of your own heart, the temptations and proclivities of your heart and your kids' hearts and others within the movement. And so you need to take a step back and let go and admit to yourself that, hey, maybe I have a problem here. Because the whole point of the classical Christian movement is to develop mature men and women who are able to hear an argument and to hear cautions with equanimity and discernment and say, yeah, I see and understand that. Yeah, I see and understand that within myself. And to be able to address those things with wisdom and grace and not just simply react in a defensive way. 
Yep. That goes yeah. for people in public school, classical school, homeschool, homeschool, Swiss boarding school, private schools, private school, Jesus Hogwarts, Park. Hogwarts, Hogwarts. Wouldn't know anything about Hogwarts. Brandon, even know what that is. True or false? True. You had a classical education. I did. True, yeah. Nathan. And you turned out pretty well. Sure. <laughs> and you also observed some of the dangerous sins and temptations that go with said. Yes, form I of was education. classically educated. I was classically educated before it was cool. Mm-hmm. I think I've noted this before. Yes. And so I, I, I had like the beta. Is that what they call it? Does uh, when Google releases its new thing, a little beta trial. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I had the beta yeah. version of classical education. We like we were taught by a philosophy PhD candidate in the basement of a lawyer in Fort Worth, where we did our Latin chants and our Greek chants, and we read Homer. And we read Socrates, and we read all the great Greek tragedies and all these things and discussed them and wrote papers and debated. And it was a classical education. We did Euclid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had to actually do Euclid's mm-hmm. proofs up on a whiteboard mm-hmm. while all the rest of the class watched. It was a cool education. Brandon actually keeps time with the sundial. Yeah, he yeah. A sundial on his wrist. Yeah, it's I dress in a toga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yet the teacher ended up converting from being a Protestant to being a Catholic. He almost convinced my best friend at the time to become a Catholic. There was just all this pride and cliquishness built into this thing. Like we had sort of a Gnostic belief that this was the education mm-hmm. system that was going to change and save the world. Like it was a revolution. It was like the Matrix revolution. It's right. this little secret group that's going to just go and defeat the evils of neocon capitalism. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see this a lot tied to libertarianism, the new classical movements. I'll back away. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too uh, deep into this again. But no, well, all that to say, I think that what I got from that school was a good education. What a classical education is tapping into is you teach a child how to read, you teach them how to think, you teach them how to articulate their thoughts and beliefs, and especially above anything else, you teach them how to be discerning. That's what traditionally was a good education. Mm-hmm. That's what Ben Franklin gave himself. That's what all the Puritan sc- schools gave their kids. My largest frustration usually has to do with when they just try to think that they found something new mm-hmm. because they read a Dorothy Sayers episode, uh, essay. <laughs> I mean, so one of these essays that I was reading, they point out fairly that colleges are trying to take away Shakespeare and replace him with multicultural things, right. like things that are definitely inferior. Yeah, that's bad. But your response shouldn't be to just sort of cling on to a new idol. Right. right, which is exactly what this person ended up arguing for. They were making good statements about fatherhood and about not killing your fathers and patricide and all of these things. Wait, with, you shouldn't kill your father? Yeah, you shouldn't kill your oh, father. Thank you. Someone oh, yeah, had yeah. the courage to say it, finally. <laughs> Thanks, so, Homer. Sh- yeah, you <laughs> shouldn't kill your intellectual fathers, so right. you shouldn't kill Shakespeare and you shouldn't kill Homer. Mm-hmm. But then this person just basically made the argument for, oh, look at me, though. You know, I teach my children Shakespeare and Homer. Mm. And Yeah, so classical conversations, and that's what you often see is just these very prideful families led by these very prideful mothers who are very proud of the fact that their child can decline a Latin mm-hmm. noun. Right. Right. That's the obvious criticism of this movement is the pride that it yeah. instigates. I think that anybody should hopefully agree with that's a danger of it. But I think just as much of a risk is what we've been saying with sort of blind idol making and this just complete lack of discernment. Why, why they never see it is because their discernment is rooted in what looks like a whole lot of knowledge mm-hmm. and a whole lot of learning. It's exactly what Erasmus became. 
and what Luther fought against, right? Mm-hmm. That's just what they're doing is they're making a whole bunch of little Erasmuses, mm-hmm. which is where Warhorn comes in to start the Reformation. That's right, baby. Welcome to the Reformation. Turning over tables. Beating Erasmuses over the head mm-hmm. since 2000. <laughs> True or false, Nathan, you were homeschooled. I was, and you'll note, note that I often speak of that with a noted lack of nostalgia and a lot of sarcasm on our show. And look, there's a lot of good things about my homeschool education. If you like the bookening, if you like my my role on the bookening, if you're not one of the people that thinks I'm a, quote, irritating host as one of our... Uh, deeply. Deeply irritating host. That's right. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Forgotten. Um, <laughs> then... I have I have some of my homeschool education to thank for for anything good that I bring up on this show. I am also well aware of the sins, well aware of the pride, and well aware of the fear that people in those kinds of movements, when they're hot, have of other forms of education. Everybody was so scared of public school, the stories of drugs, the urban legends of the awful things that happened, and anything that wasn't homeschool were just silly. Back in my day, when homeschooling was really a big deal in the 90s, when I was coming of age. So that, that, that you always should have that in the back of your head when you hear me be snarky about homeschool. You should always have Brandon's history in the back of your head when you hear him be snarky about classical education. You should note that Jake generally doesn't join in to either one of those things. He's public schooled, so he's, he does, he's not even smart <laughs> enough to, to, <laughs> to be able to comment. It's all like, over my head. <laughs> and that's not to invalidate. I think I see the sins of homeschooling accurately. I think Brandon sees the sins of classical education accurately. But just be aware of that. That's our context. That's our baggage. And I look at them and I think, oh, boo-hoo, white boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had the sins of classical education and the sins of homeschooling. Yeah, meanwhile, Jake was shooting up heroin <laughs> in the hall, right. whatever they did. <laughs> that rubber band I did in his have, teeth. I had public education at a large high school. Yeah. At, a large, at large schools all the way up. I noticed you have not put your kids into a public school. True. Nor will I ever put my kids into public school. You probably would be happy for your kids to be homeschooled or private schooled or Anything classically but. educated. Yeah. So, yeah, me and Brandon have a lot to be Anything thankful but. for. And then they can go and they can be bitter about it and cry on podcasts about how bad their stupid education was <laughs> while they're sheltered and protected from the actual very real dangers of public school. Hey, I made a career out of it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this isn't so bad. <laughs> so you look at Homer... Here's this great poet who was entirely, utterly Greek. Yeah. And that's fine. Tolstoy was this great novelist who was entirely and utterly Russian Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And that brings its own problems. And if you don't have any discernment about it, you're going to end up just blindly loving the bad with the good. Mm -hmm. Any good education should teach discernment over anything else. Well, perhaps the other thing to say about it is that it's, this is a blitheringly obvious thing to say, but it's not helping people learn about Homer when you shove Homer into your Christian classical no. mold such that you try are trying to derive certain morality and truth and, you know, good biblical truth that's just simply not there. Yes. It's yeah. doing a disservice to what, what actually is great, what actually is, in fact, virtuous even about Homer. Yeah. People aren't going to be able to engage with it because you've forced Homer to do yes. things for you that Homer actually just wasn't intending to do, rightly or wrongly. You know he what wasn't I see telling us the heart of Homer's Odyssey. Was that redemptive sacrifice? Redemptive sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. it's a redemptive exactly. for. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's all one big redemptive. Yeah. We should we should just explain that to people maybe. Yeah, it's a we have a gag on uh, Sound of Sanity, Sanity at the Movies. Mm-hmm. A little segment called Popcorn Theologians where right. uh, they just come out and talk about how redemptive. It doesn't matter what the movie is. Right, it's just this is all about redemptive sacrifice. It's all about redemptive sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Part of every movie and so and that's we how mock that sort of undiscerning whitewashing whitewashing mm-hmm. of any movie and, and it feels like we're being kind of mean and snarky when we do it but man i just can't tell you how many articles i've read that do just well the famous one that we did on sound of sanity was about an article turning 50 shades of gray into a metaphor for jesus christ that's yeah. so disgusting um and yeah. it's just disgusting and it's and and, and to some do, to a large degree that's what people will do with things like the odyssey that's what some of my old homeschool friends would do well, that's what this essay i was reading and been talking about was doing and Take as a thing on its own terms yeah, yeah and as i read it i was like way. this sounds fantastic but what you're describing is augustine you're not describing homer right 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 you're <laughs> you're describing the confessions yeah i've get this augustine's really great yeah just read him yeah so you, you want you want this sort of thing you want this sort of teaching and rhetoric and logic and thinking and have a real a guy that you know is kind of moral and austere but still writing in this beautiful prose you go read augustine but that's what you want in the but meantime instead, let's have a little respect for one of the greatest pagans that ever lived the blind bard of ithaca or yeah. whatever he was homer but uh, take him on turkey. a yeah. turkey yeah the blind bard of turkey <laughs> the blind bard of turkey i imagine him just eating a turkey leg while he's <laughs> quoting his poetry at the <laughs> county Think fair me, um, <laughs> Homer has so many virtues and so many merits and so many things that are great about him to try and make him do what what he never meant to do is is not doing him any kind of service. Or yourself any service or the students you're trying to teach any service. What you're doing is you're teaching them to be undiscerning. And so what's what's really been fascinating to me going back and reading Lewis, I mean, he's he would be on board with everything we're saying right Absolutely. now about Homer because he, he doesn't hold Homer to this high standard either. He sees Homer as a man, as an artist that was created by his time, just like any artisting right. person. Like So we would treat Dennis Johnson the same way. We'd treat Homer the same way, right? Yeah. Where C.S. Lewis gets weird is he goes the opposite direction and says, yeah. just open yourself up and let these people do whatever they, I mean, well, it doesn't surprise me, actually, uh, oh, this openness and weird sexuality that's always at the undertone of Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but what's what's interesting is the fact that these same people that do this to Homer, they do this to Lewis, too. And so mm-hmm. they've appropriated Lewis and kind of twisted him and made him into what they want him to be. Well, they appropriate everything. It's an yeah. all-devouring monster because anything that they like is going to be turned into the pinnacle of achievement and of Christian... Intellectualism. Yeah. Beauty of Christian thought. What's is really, and what's really funny is where we'll get to kind of go at it again. It's the fact that they have appropriated the perfect time bomb that if they really understood what was going on with it would just completely explode and destroy them, which is Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Because she just absolutely hates them. <laughs> right. <laughs> but man, they it's like love trying her. To, it's like trying to hug a tiger. Mm-hmm. They managed to do it. They managed, but boy, it's do they look stupid? <laughs> yeah. Well, when you're so insecure that you have to take Homer and fit him into your box that, or Shakespeare or whoever. Plato. Plato. Fit, fit them into a box that bolsters you up as a serious intellectual and moral teacher so that you can claim some kind of equal status with them and, and feel like you have them in your corner. It's just really pathetic. Yeah. I mean, you have so little trust and belief in the power and authority of God and of Jesus Christ that you need to bolster them 
right. by saying that all the greats of history were always just really writing about Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's really just like, weak. do Jesus a favor, acknowledge that he does not need Homer, that God yeah, does no not shit. need Homer or Plato or any of those guys to have been striving towards him. You know, let's take all of the moral content of the Odyssey and set it next to the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Put them in a room together and see which one walks out and see if it takes longer than about 30 seconds. Yeah, no, that's, that's right? uh, Muhammad yeah. Ali versus Stephen Hawking. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> That's my wonderful I mean, metaphor. why do we why do we need to pretend like Homer's got something to say? No, he doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> Homer says what he says. You should be polite to kings when you meet them. You should have some good things to say. You should understand hospitality and be well spoken. Yeah. And you and should that gets a, you know maybe a couple proverbs. Right. You should and embodying a couple proverbs in a novel or in a poem or even an epic poem is a good aim. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. But in the end, like you've said over and over again, it's fun. And it's an adventure. It's good to read. And mm-hmm. now obviously people It's a say, boys story, guys. <clears throat> this yeah. is a story for boys. Mm-hmm. And people will then say, well, Brandon, I thought you don't like Ernest Klein, but isn't that fun? <laughs> When you open the can of worms, you close it. <clears throat> I would say, well... Homer is better than Ernest Klein. Yeah, How about two, that? Two points to that. No, I actually don't think Ernest Klein is all that fun. Oh, I thought you were going to say, <laughs> no, I don't think Homer's better than Ernest Klein. No, but if you want... This is going to seem like a cop-out, but I think it's true. We talked a lot about, and Lewis talked a lot about the fact when you try to pinpoint what's happening, it disappears, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to describe. But if you want to understand the difference between what I would consider like fun that's worth having versus fun that's not worth having because it's fun that's artistically done, fun that's crafted for you in such a way that it's beautiful mm-hmm. versus fun that's just cotton candy. Read The Odyssey and read Ready Player One and you'll see the difference. That's really yeah, well I can say. I you just got to experience. Well, one yeah. thing that's different about it is you put Ready Player One might be fun while you're reading, but you put it on the dissection table and it dies because there's nothing to it. Whereas The Odyssey, I mean, we could get another it's, nine podcasts uh, out of it. It's rich. Yeah. It's stood up for a couple thousand years. Yeah, it's doing all Scrutiny. right for itself. And it's great. Right. We'll see if Ready Player One makes it another five years. 3,000 years from now, if Ready Player One is still a popular book, I'll eat my hat. Crawl yeah. out of the grave. Yep. You have it here. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon Justine will be rolling in his grave if that happens. Yeah, but... <laughs> All right, guys. Jake, do you give the BSOA, the Booking Seal of Approval, to Homer's? <laughs> such a stupid question. To Homer's The Odyssey. Well, I uh, yes, I, I give it the Seal of Approval. You're right up there. Homer with the gets Time. You and Time Magazine. Me and Time Magazine. <laughs> we we approve of Homer. <laughs> Homer's Odyssey. What age do you think a boy should be? Well, that's a good question. None of these fake versions like I was given. They should just read the real thing. Straight dope, right? Which means they should wait until what age? It depends on who's reading it with them. I don't think they should read the Odyssey without a teacher. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's right. I think if they read the Odyssey with a good teacher, taking into account relative maturity, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say 12 at the very earliest, but probably 14 is about right. Yeah, there's a big difference between 12 and 14, There is a huge difference between 12 and 14, and and that's why I think the maturity of of the kid and the quality of the teacher really matter, and I probably... Probably, you know, my kids, my oldest isn't 12 yet. So when I'm 12, I'll... When you're 12? When I'm 12. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I'm- I think I hit it at about the right time, 14. 14, yeah. And Brandon? I agree. I think around 13, question? 13 and 14. Do you give it the coveted BSOA? Not so sure. You're not sure? Okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Two, three. three. You give it 
Three BSOAs. Three BSOAs. Wow, we've never. This has never happened before. <laughs> You're actually giving it multiple BSOAs. I mean, it deserves it, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's been around. The blind bard would be pleased as punch. Yeah, he or she, I should say. Too bad he's not around. The or it. Yeah, this conglomeration. <laughs> it's a clown. <laughs> um, yes, I also give it the BSOA, and I would agree with you guys. About 14 is probably about right. I think there's probably some sharp 12 year olds, and I think there's certainly some 12 year olds that would enjoy it, whether it'd be good for them or not. I don't know. It's pretty bloody. It's bloody. Pretty sad. Sexy, I guess. Yep. I shouldn't say I it's pretty sexy. This, it's for a fourteen-year-old boy. I sure did wonder why he would want to leave Calypso's Island. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I sure did get kicks out of imagining myself being in Odysseus's shoes a little too much. Yep. 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 And I like the part where he put an arrow through that guy's neck and blood yeah. came gushing out and everything like that. Uh, yeah. Boys like stories about bloody things happening. That's another episode, I guess. Although this would have been a good place to talk about it. We got to talk about that sometime, but... Bloody things? Yeah. Yeah, boys like bloody things. Yeah, they do. There you go. We talked about it. Yeah, good job. <laughs> boys are made for... The, ha- they have bodies that ought to be crafted for war. Yep. Yeah. As, as a great man once... <laughs> ought to be, yeah. <laughs> sort of <laughs> falteringly said... <laughs> Booking was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alberson. Like all fine Warhorn Media products, warhornmedia.com is the website. At Warhorn Media and at the Booking are the things that you type in on social media to find us. And yeah, you want to get some land and titles done, get some oil, get some WD 30 or whatever, call Brandon right up. He's an oil man. Yeah, 40 He'll for the right price. Drink your milkshake. I will. I will drink your milkshake. Lots yep. and lots of especially if they're good milkshakes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, what else, anything else to say, Jake? Patreon.com forward slash the booking. Go right now, right this minute. Yeah. Don't wait another don't, second. Yeah. Don't waste an, uh, another month. Think about could be how many years of your life you've spent not supporting the booking. Too long. <laughs>